three of college football's Power Five conferences intend to play football this fall, while two have announced they will not. Who had that in the pool? Our colleges writer Michael Smith is here to talk about how the leaders of college football got to this seemingly unlikely spot. Then we'll hear from executive editor and publisher Abe Madcor. That and whatever else comes up once we get talking here in the digitally connected work-from-home newsroom of Sports Business Journal. I'm Bill King, and this is First Look. So over the last few months of this podcast, we've taken several swings at whether there was likely to be a college football season. And one of the things we've talked about was the fact that because this virus would flare at different levels and in different places and states would have varying approaches to it, college football, which is largely regional by its very nature, and by the way, not just football, college sports, would face a very complicated road back. At no point did we raise the possibility that two of the five major conferences would move their seasons to the spring, while the other three would say they fully intend to play on beginning next month. Our college's writer, Michael Smith, has the story behind that divergence and the thinking behind it on our cover this week and is here now to talk about it. Michael, how the heck did we get here? I mean, here to this spot. Well, that's a great question, Bill. <laughs> it's, uh, it was a sequence of events, really, that started July 9th when the Big Ten surprised everyone and came out with a with a, an, an announcement that they were going to go with a conference-only schedule. Other conferences then kind of came up with their own announcements along those lines. Then fast forward to August 5th, the Big Ten announces with a big you know schedule reveal show on, on BTN that uh, is now scheduled with dates starting September 5th. Then things started getting kind of wonky and reports started to surface that Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren really preferred the spring. And this was two days after they had just revealed the schedule on BTN. And to me, what's really interesting, and I've not seen this written or reported anywhere, is what changed, what happened in those two days from that August 5th to August 7th that made the Big Ten go from a, a TV show that celebrated the new schedule to, you know, we're not going to do this. We need to go to the, to the spring. And that's where everything kind of went haywire. The Big Ten eventually comes out and says they're pushing back to the spring. The Pac-12 follows suit. And then the other three conferences, the ACC, SEC, and Big 12, don't follow suit. They go in a different direction. And it was a little bit like one of those early episodes of Survivor when you, you see these alliances start to form. <laughs> yeah. And if you got left out of one of those alliances, you got kicked off the island. And so we were sitting there watching the Big Ten and the Pac-12 go one way. We're watching the ACC and the SEC go a different way. And then you've got the Big 12 that everyone was waiting to see what they would do. And they aligned with the SEC and the ACC. Now, those three conferences plus some others in the FBS – are planning to play and starting in September, but there's still no guarantee that we'll ever get to that point. So while these plans are being made and these conferences are moving toward a season in September, I, I would say we're, we're at about midfield and still a long way to go to get into the red zone. Do you think that the opinion of the medical experts they're talking to, they're talking to different medical experts, do you think that figures into this a lot? Do you think it's the culture of the universities, the culture of the conferences? Why is it that you think that two go one way, three go the other? 
I do think that the advice that's coming from their medical experts is first and foremost. And so when you see that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 say it's just too dangerous, it's too risky, what the ACC doctor is saying is not totally different than that. But what he's saying is, yes, there is risk. How much risk are you willing to take? Mm -hmm. There is a way to play football safely. It's going to be really expensive. It's going to be really difficult. There's going to be some elements of a bubble that they're going to attempt on campus, but they're trying their best to play football in the fall. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 saw a way to move football to the spring, and they, you know, the leadership there went in that direction. But I'm hearing from a lot of sources in the Big Ten that they don't like the idea of going to the spring. They don't understand what happened. I talked to one AD who said, we had a plan. We were following the plan. And, and what happened? Nobody really knows. And so that's kind of put uh, Kevin Warren, the new Big Ten commissioner, under under the heat, the heat lamp. A lot of people are curious to see how he'll respond because there's a lot of, uh, as, as we put it, one athletic director in the Big Ten. There's a lot of upset people that don't understand what happened. Those upset uh, people, both within the Big Ten and and those that you know who felt sort of blindsided. In those other conferences, which prefer, I mean, obviously they would love to have gone all five one way or the other, because then you have a CFP and you can do a lot of things. All that falls apart when they go in two different directions. And so I, I think that I understand why a lot of them would be upset. Do they put any stock into, I mean, what it, there seems to be a fairly clear progression there from Doctors coming out and you started to hear stories about real concerns around, around not just a matter of who tests positive, how many test positive, whether they get sick, if they recover, but concerns around after those who uh, – uh, what the health risks have been for those who do recover as you saw some players having heart issues and other things. And it seemed that that percolating up and being a big part of the discussion happened right around the same time that the Big Ten swung 180. Do does the rest of the college football world see it that way? Well, they do, and and so it, it's even though the SEC and the ACC and the Big Twelve are saying that they're going to continue pursuing a season, it doesn't mean that they're discounting those reports. They're, what they're trying to do is put the systems in place, the checks in place, to be able to detect those potential heart-related issues. They are aware of that, just like the other conferences are. And they say that they are prepared to test for it in every way possible on a daily basis. When you think about the move to spring, it does give you a schedule and it does give you at least a possibility. Like right now, we know even if there are fans in stands, there won't be many. Possibly by the spring, there could be more. It would seem that that could be, let's even get away for a second, the questions of health risks. But when you think about the economics of these decisions, waiting until the spring does give you a chance that maybe you can actually put some of those fans in seats. Maybe you can actually fulfill some of those sales that you've made. Why does it not work out that way? Because clearly the other schools don't see it that way. Well, all that may be true, but you have to look at it this way too. If the SEC, ACC, and Big 12 end up playing this fall and they get their seasons in, I don't know that anybody's going to really care what the Pac-12 and the Big Ten do in the spring because it seems to me like those seasons could be rendered fairly meaningless if if the other conferences have already played and determined champions and 
maybe even had a college football playoff. Who knows? First of all, I let's let's caveat in great big giant letters. Who knows whether there really is a season right now? They're just planning for it. But if it does happen, do you think there will be a CFP at the end of it? I think there potentially could be a CFP at the end of it. Bill, I, I think this thing honestly could go almost week to week mm-hmm. based on where teams are playing. Are they are they playing a school that's in a, a hot zone at that time? You know, a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff is un, you know not not easily predictable. And I think you could see a team in the middle of the chase for a spot in the playoff or maybe a bowl game if there are bowl games run into a situation where they can't play a game in a given week. Does that mean they take a forfeit? Does that mean they reschedule if they can? Or does it mean it just, that game just never happens? I think there's going to be a lot of interesting circumstances that uh, we, we've never come across before that are going to be part of this season. And that's why we keep hearing college football officials saying it's going to look a lot different than, than other seasons have, but they're going to do their best to get through it. The other concern about the spring really is how do you – play a full spring season and then turn around and have a full fall season. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the prototypes that have been put, that have been put forth, they're talking about eight game seasons in the spring and then maybe a 10 game season in the, in the fall. And that, that at least gets you playing football, but at the same time, they've really hampered two seasons instead of one. And that, that's another argument that they'll have to, figure out. And oh, by the way, you've got, again, you know, one portion of the power five going another one way, the other going the other way. So now when you go into next season, you've got what some are going to play 10 and some are going to play 12 or 13 and, and who knows where it goes from there. Right. So all sorts of unpleasant uncertainty around all that. One of the things that I, I, I've always thought was particularly interesting about this is that in the end, it would seem these are calls that are not going to be made by athletic directors or conference commissioners or television networks. These are calls that are going to be made in the president's office at campuses, on campuses around the country, or in some cases at the president's home because nobody's in the offices. That dynamic, when I think about the way things went in the Big Ten, and I think about the way things went in the Pac-12, and I think about the culture of a lot of those institutions, um, they are a little different than a lot of the other three conferences we're talking about. But within those three conferences, there are certainly schools. You have Virginia, Duke, Carolina, Wake in the ACC alone. There are some in the SEC, Vandy, maybe Florida, maybe Georgia, where the university presidents think about themselves as an AAU, not Amateur Athletic Union, but American Association of Universities, Research Universities. They think of themselves in that company first. And that company is going in a different direction. I wonder how that plays out. And and is it that this hasn't necessarily reached the presidents yet in those leagues? I do believe it has reached the presidents in those leagues. The uh, the presidents are looped in on, uh, on those calls within the conference almost daily, certainly multiple times per week. They've, without question, they've got their hands full across all of higher education, trying to keep major universities. Yeah moving along and keeping them in business. And so I I think it's pretty safe to say that the university presidents are using the information that's provided to them by the medical experts and by the athletic directors to ultimately make their decisions. Kevin Warren is going to catch a lot of heat for the decision that the Big Ten made 
but ultimately it did take the, the vote of the presidents and the Big Ten to cancel football for the fall. But obviously the commissioner has a lot to do with that and athletic directors have a lot to do with that as they try to guide them and provide them with the best information possible. Everything that I hear is that higher education, you know, universities and colleges across the country are, are facing some real financial challenges. And, you know, just like we heard the uh, the president of Robert Morris tell R.A. Madcore in a, in a previous interview, he, you know, he's not shying away from the fact that he is running a humongous business where athletics is three or 4% of the total budget. And so kind of gives you an idea of how many balls they've got in the air that they're trying to, to juggle, frankly, stay in business. Yeah. And that's why you know, I just think that athletics, as much as it may mean to an awful lot of people, um, I always think about, you know, when, when, when we talk about a 10 million or 12 million viewers for something, that's out of the U.S. population. That's, that's a whole lot of people that weren't watching that game. And so I, I wonder, again, on, when you think about all the things an institution is dealing with right now, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I have to make that decision about football right now. I think that the fact that those three are still going, again, and, and, and oh, by the way, what if Auburn and Mississippi State want to go a different way than Florida and Vandy? What if you know UNC and Duke um, and Wake and, and Virginia all sort of stand up and say, yeah, we're not up for this? Then what? You know, it's interesting when you think about when this whole conversation started back in March and football came up as a potential you know, trouble spot. The thinking was, well, if we can't have students on campus, then we're certainly not going to have athletes on campus. That whole argument has done a 180 and come back to where now, you know, if students are not on campus, maybe that it makes it easier to keep these athletes in a bubble and keep them away from other students while they're on campus. So do you, do you take an argument that best fits your position? There, there could be some of that, but mm-hmm. it just tells you how the narrative has changed and evolved through the course of the last six months to a point where one argument that was popular at the start of this now is out the window. And at one point they were saying that bubbles on college campuses didn't make any sense. But you know, now we're seeing schools take elements of the bubble, isolating athletes as much as they can. Now, obviously, you can't do it completely, especially if they're going to class, but trying to influence the athletes to be as smart as possible if they want to be able to play football and keep the number of infections down. Well, it was impossible to predict the way this was going to go, right? I mean, you think about all those people who have now taken their kids back to college towns, while there may not be classes for them to go to, but you go back and you get in your apartment and you get set up, right? Because there may be classes to go to, or there may be classes to go to later in the quarter or the semester. There's, And again, those are going to, those are going to unfold very differently on different campuses, I would suspect. That complicates everything. Yeah. My son is, uh, has been up at, uh, he's in school at Appalachian State. He's been up at Boone the entire summer. He's got a job, so he had a, a reason to get there to be uh, working wasn't necessarily a slam dunk decision that he was going to do that. But after we talked it through and he just, you know, wanted to make sure he fully understood what, what he needed to do while he was up there. We made the decision that he would go ahead and go back to campus. Well, he lives off campus, but right there, he'd right. go, he'd go back to Boone and, and kind of work his way back into the you know, student life that he was, that he was having before. And so he's uh Seems to have done okay. You know, I think he's been 
careful, you know, as carefully as he can be. And it's, it's worked out well for him. He's been able to work his job and make some money and pay for his rent. So, well, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting conversation around the athletes themselves, right? And you've, you've, you've seen the athletes, you know, speaking up and, and even coordinating and consolidating a bit and, and trying to have a voice in this. And you've, you've heard athletes, parents, consolidating and coordinating and trying to have a voice in this because there are concerns, but there's also a desire to play. And there's no players association here, right? So there's no union at the table across from um, these athletic directors saying, well, this is the position of the players and this is what we need in order to be comfortable to come back. That's, That's just not the way it works in college sports. Do you think that the voice of the players, that's the other thing you just, what made me think about this was, you know, you talked about the way the conversation has changed around um, the bubble. Um, you've heard, and again, this this fits, the, fits their argument, but you've heard athletic directors and coaches say, hey, the safest place for these guys, even if we don't play football, they're going to stay on campus. And even if there are no in-person classes, they're going to stay here because that's really where they're safest. That's where they live. You know, that's a piece of it. All those sort of athlete health safety issues, how do you think that's evolving? And do you think that that's a meaningful voice in the conversation right now? Well, I, I, I do think it's worth noting, uh, first off, that Kevin Warren does have a son who plays football at Mississippi State. And so I, I feel pretty certain that, that Kevin has thought about the voice of the athlete and whether it was his son or athletes in the Big Ten whatever their position has been that that's had some influence with him. We're seeing the, the, you know, the parents and the players, especially in the big 10 really push back, go public in some places and in, in some media outlets to express their unhappiness with the decision that was made and not, not really just the decision that was made, but the way it was made and the way it came across and kind of the lack of communication and their sense that they didn't have as much of a voice as they would have liked. And so they're, they're going to find other ways to express themselves. Football is not the only sport. And uh, most conferences have generally con- canceled their fall schedules outside of football, even if they've ca- they haven't canceled football, correct? How do things proceed as we get to the winter sports, um, which are played indoors, by the way? Basketball lends itself to maybe a some slightly more creative approach. So we're already starting to hear some scenarios for college basketball that would either start with a season in January, or if they if they want to try to stick with the idea of starting in late October or November, coming up with some events that could be held in a bubble or different ways to hold a tournament, maybe going to a best two out of three format in, in a conference tournament, doing doing things that would get like we talk about with the professional bubbles. So we get teams in one place and keep them there for a period of time, which especially if, if, you know, if a lot of these schools are wrapping up around Thanksgiving or the first week after Thanksgiving, that would give the, some of the, a lot of the schools the opportunity to go to a, a central site for maybe four to eight teams that, would, that could come together and have some type of meaningful competition. Mm-hmm. There's, a lot of creative scenarios for basketball that, that make me optimistic that we'll see some type of a season. And it's probably not going to look like a, a typical March Madness, but I think they, they may find a unique or different way to crown a champion. It's interesting that we're talking about finding a way to play college basketball. We are finding a way in some leagues to play college football while they are canceling 
other sports. Now, they're both students. They both face the same health risks. And yet, some of them are going to play and some of them aren't. And I can't get past this being about anything other than what's driving revenue for the athletic department. Because if the athletes who don't drive drive revenue are not going to play and the athletes who do drive revenue are going to play, maybe this isn't about health and safety. Well, I, I don't, I don't think that the commissioners and athletic directors would would hide from the fact that money is a factor. I mean, th- this is a what four billion dollar college football industry with a lot of businesses and a lot of jobs at stake. I don't think that they would say that that's not a consideration. I'm just not sure how well that's going to play long term in a university president's office, and I'm not sure how that's going to play long term in Congress, and I'm not sure how that's going to play long term in governor's mansions uh, and state legislatures. Nobody knows how this goes. It still seems that there's an awful lot that has to happen between now and the start of that football season for that football season to start, right? Yeah, I mean, these schools are going to spend a lot of money trying to play and, and at the same time, trying to keep the athletes healthy and safe. And so, you know, what, what the bottom line looks like on that versus not playing at all, I'm not sure which, which, way, which way they come out better. Certainly, if they play, being able to collect the media revenue would be, you know, first and foremost when you're talking about uh, hundreds of, of millions of dollars at stake per conference for a college football season. There's nothing about that math that makes it different in the Pac-12 or Big Ten though, right? They just made that decision. They, they made that decision. It, it, the, there's not a, a business reason that makes them any different, right? Well, you know, Larry Scott from the Pac-12 came out and said that the revenue was never considered a factor when they made their decision to, to push to the spring. I, I, I don't think that anybody's putting health and safety behind the finances and the economics of college football. I wouldn't say it's not a consideration at all either. I'm sure it's a consideration, but we're making different decisions, certainly for high school athletes than we are for college athletes and uh, similar age brackets, not completely the same, similar age group brackets though. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember what's happening right now is that administrators are doing everything they can to put themselves in a position to be ready to play football if circumstances permit it. Mm Mm-hmm. In, in September. And, you know, it's very possible a lot of things change. Uh, like I said before, there's still a long way to go before they get to a point where they, they are ready to play football. It's still entirely possible that those three conferences decide not to play. We heard about batches of 20 and 25 and 30, 30 positive tests and workouts shutting down. And all of that all of a sudden became very quiet. Is what, What's going on with testing and and how programs are are advancing as we get closer to the season you know from what the schools say the the athletes get uh get tested multiple times per week and the ones that get a positive test they go into a quarantine for two weeks and they come back and go back to playing unless there's some kind of uh, obviously you know serious side effect or some some other symptom that comes up but uh, most of these cases seem to be, you know, I don't have stats in front of me, but anecdotally, they definitely seem to be asymptomatic. And so, as, as we've heard schools say, look, when a kid gets infected, we're, we're prepared for that. We, we understand that that's going to happen. We're going to give the athlete the best treatment possible and get them ready to go back to the school and go back to being a, a part of the team. I think what we're hearing from schools is that they're not ready to shut everything down because 
there's one or two infections. No, I think it's been bigger numbers than that when they've shut down. Some places, yeah. you know, a lot of places there have been very few. You right. Know, you take, like Notre Dame, I think it has had two two infections. You know, it's, it's it's definitely different from campus to campus. It is, so. and that's that's what makes this all so so complicated. And you know, we talk about how the the NFL and well, the NFL yet to come, but we talk about the NBA and the NHL and baseball and those decisions that had to be made. This is way more complicated than that. It's way more layered. Uh, health and safety takes on an entirely different dynamic when you're talking about someone who's making a living versus someone who's going to school. So many pieces that that, that uh, the regionality, so many pieces here that make college sports very different. Certainly a confounding puzzle that they're all dealing with. And uh, as we trudge forward toward um, what may or may not be the start of a season, because again, now let's see what happen in these, happens in these next few weeks as other students report back to campus. I'm sure that will color a lot of decisions that still have to be made by, again, I think when it comes down to it, this is at the pay grade of the president's level. And that, by the way, may be superseded by the pay grade of the governor's level. So college sports uh, with a, in a very, very complicated uh, decision-making time. And, uh, and that's why we see so many heading in so many different directions. Michael Smith, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Bill. First Look is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're a fan of our podcast, subscribe on your mobile device to have First Look delivered right to your phone every Monday morning. Now, we'll bring in executive editor and publisher, Abe Madcor. Abe? Thanks, Bill. Hope everyone's doing well today. I'm Abe Madcor, joining you on First Look. A little bit of a backstory behind our big package this week about the state of the minds of sports fans. I've been doing a lot of anecdotal research, I'm sure like we all have. Every conversation I have with an associate or a friend or colleagues or the wives of my buddies, I really try to get into their mindset about their interest in sports. Are they still hardcore sports fans? Do they miss sports? Are they watching more sports? Or have they spent some of this time in the last six months exploring other hobbies and interests? That is everyone's greatest fear, that the casual sports fan will move on. That's something we tried to explore, Bill, in our package on on the fans. We talked to more than two dozen. And the early signs that I took from the anecdotal evidence and the qualitative research we did was that fans' passion remains. They're still very engaged and miss sports. They really miss sports and they do want to watch. Now, whether they're ready to go back to the live event experience, to be determined too early to tell. Even hardcore fans expressed to us that they were just not that ready to go back nor interested in going back to the live fan experience. I bring that up because I'm talking to a lot of teams. Some teams are having surprisingly strong success at selling tickets for next year, 21, mainly basketball and hockey teams I've spoken with. So they feel optimistic that people are ready to return, but I do think teams are really running out different permutations and scenarios of how many people potentially could be in buildings and how many people they think will be willing to come back to buildings. So all part of this package we did that gets into the mind of the sports fan, all in all, I think it's pretty encouraging, but there are still some pain points, of course, for people's openness to return to sports. Second thing I'm keeping an eye on, keep an eye on Bubba Wallace. He's had a nice run here recently on the corporate endorsement side. Last week in 
Sports Business Daily, we noted that he had a deal with Columbia Sportswear. Later in the week, he signed a deal with DoorDash, a multi-year deal. This comes after his deal with Beats by Dre. So three good partnerships for Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace was also a featured speaker in our Thought Leaders Retreat last week. It was off the record, but he gave a great interview. And I had not seen too many interviews with Bubba, but he comes across as so real, so down to earth, so open, very transparent, and also very honest. He's frustrated. He feels that the world's impatient. He feels there are a lot of haters out there. It opened a side of Bubba Wallace that I had not seen, and I really can see why he would be a very strong spokesperson for a brand. I can see why a fan base will continue to grow around Bubba Wallace. I think the next big thing is where will he drive next year? We know that he's a free agent after this NASCAR season. Richard Petty Motorsports has offered him a new deal with ownership, but there's a lot of rumors out there. Could he land at a larger team? Uh, Chip Ganassi Racing's been mentioned. So if he's able to get more resources behind him, Bubba Wallace could really take off and be a even larger brand name and have a much, much larger following. Finally, Bill, the last thing I'm keeping an eye on, in Liverpool, they have just promoted a former 40 under 40 winner. Billy Hogan was uh, promoted from managing director and chief commercial officer to CEO. He'll replace Peter Moore. Peter Moore will leave the club and return to the United States. Peter Moore, of course, is very well known in our circles. He's been a brand leader for a number of years, including EA and others. He's incredibly whip smart. He's incredibly charismatic. He loves his sports. Liverpool was his team. He's a native of Liverpool. But now he is moving on. Billy Hogan, who came up through the ranks of Fenway Sports Group, who has been at Fenway Sports Group since, I believe, about 2012. He's young. He's 45 years old. He's been at Liverpool for a few years. He's made the transition from an American executive to running an EPL team very well, and that's hard. Sometimes American executives, how to say it, aren't welcomed with open arms by the hardcore fan base of the EPL teams. But Hogan's a very smart business executive. He balances the tradition of a brand with the commercial opportunities he sees. That could be because he came up through Fenway Sports Group, which of course does that very well with the Red Sox. But Billy Hogan's pretty quiet. He's low profile. Now he'll have a much higher profile as he leads Liverpool, of course, one of the best known, most successful, most valuable brands in all of sports. So those are some things I'm keeping an eye on, Bill King. Hope everybody has a great week this week. Love to hear from you on what you're keeping your eye on. I made Matt Core for First Look. Back to you, Bill. Thanks, Abe. That's going to do it for this week. For Abe Madcore, Michael Smith, and our producer, Chris Mason, I'm Bill King, and this has been First Look. 